I'm Audrey Cooper, Editor-in-Chief of the San Francisco Chronicle, and you're listening to Fifth and Mission. When it became apparent that San Francisco had flattened the curve, UCSF realized it had gotten ready for a surge of COVID-19 cases that never came. So the medical center put together two teams of health workers to travel to communities that have been battered by the novel coronavirus, the Navajo Nation and New York, the disease's U.S. epicenter. Dr. Maya Kodis was one of those who volunteered to go. She's a clinical instructor in pulmonary and critical care medicine at UCSF, but for the last month, she's been working at Weill Cornell Medicine, a medical center in Manhattan. She got there on April 11th, five days after infections in New York City reached an apex. She found a hospital adapting to a tidal wave of sickness. She worked as an attending physician on a neurology ward that had been converted to an intensive care unit. You can read about her experience in Sarah Feldberg's story at sfchronicle.com. Sarah talked to Dr. Kodis late last week, just before she flew home to San Francisco, and here's that interview. The Chronicle's Sarah Feldberg and Dr. Maya Kodis. Hi, Maya. Welcome to Fifth and Mission. Thanks for having me, Sarah. You got there five days after the peak of the surge in New York City. What did you find when you arrived at the hospital? Oh, boy, that's a huge question. Um, I think that um, at the very start, um, I was surprised, almost shell-shocked. I think the same probably could be said of a lot of my colleagues. Um, We um, had sort of psychologically prepared to um, be battling this virus under suboptimal conditions, meaning like maybe not in the typical ICU setting that we usually have, maybe not with the same um, quantity or quality of equipment that we would usually have, um, maybe with um, a hodgepodge of different staff. And certainly that's what we, um, what we encountered. Um, I, I found myself working with staff who were not initially trained to do um, you know, medical ICU level care in um, a standard hospital ward that had been converted to an ICU and, you know, with ventilators um, that were not designed for long-term or intermediate-term care of these patients. And um, that was really shocking. And I think we were uh, also lucky to have arrived after the peak because um, we were able to witness um, a significant improvement during the time that we were here in New York. Um, and um, and the start of de-escalation even the, in the last few days. And you were part of a team from UCSF who volunteered for this assignment. Um, I, I imagine that that process, the sort of volunteering and deciding to go was really happening as coronavirus cases there were exploding. Why did you want to go? It sounds like a pretty scary decision to make. I think that... Um, as a pulmonologist and an intensivist, if there's any time that I should volunteer um, to do something meaningful for the world, it should probably be during a critical respiratory pandemic. Um, This was, you know, I think we all end up with situations in which we are, you know, particularly well suited to be able to help and this was an opportunity where I was particularly well suited to help. Like I had the right skill set, I had the interest, I had um, 
the ability, you know, the support of my home institution, the support of near Presbyterian incoming, the um, support of my partner, the ability to um, like extricate myself from my life for a month and be able to give time to this. And, um, and it was also, um, you know, quite disempowering and um, really um, frightening to be watching on the other side of the country and to realize that we in San Francisco had been so lucky that we seem to be flattening the curve and to just sort of watch this all unraveling in another part of the country and know that I could do something and that I wasn't doing it. So it seemed, um, it seemed like kind of in a, in a, in a strange way, like an obvious um, choice to come out. Were you scared to, about what you might find when you got there? Yeah, I was absolutely scared. I mean, I think um, there are just so many layers of that. One is that uh, we just heard about, you know, an extraordinary number of deaths. And while, you know, taking critical, uh, taking care of critically ill patients, you know, just comes with um, it, it part, part and parcel of, of taking care of critically ill patients is that you know, we do lose patients, that that's what it means to be critically ill is that you have a high likelihood of, of succumbing to your illness. And I was prepared for that, but not really prepared. You know, I, I wasn't really sure, like, how I was going to handle the number of, of deaths that we were going to see. And, um, you know, I didn't really know how I was going to work in sort of suboptimal circumstances. I've only had like a few cases in my life where I, um, you know, was I encountered a medical emergency or some situation where I didn't really feel like I had the equipment that I needed. And, um, and those were terrifying because, you know, we, in the ICU, it's like part of what we do is try to take care of totally uncontrolled circumstances in the most controlled way we have with like, you know, maximum amount of equipment and whatnot. So I was scared about that. And, um, you know, to a lesser extent, I was scared about getting sick. Um, I think that was probably the thing that was the least concerning to me. I was scared about being, lonely out here. I was scaring about, scared about not knowing what to do or how to care for these patients. Um, I was scared about, you know, working with people I didn't know who didn't trust me, who didn't know me, um, not knowing the hospital system, like pretty much everything. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you talk about treating patients in the, in the suboptimal setting um, and the surge certainly required that. Tell me a little bit about the different ways that the hospital had adapted to the surge and the different ways that they had, you know, used areas that were not normally ICU areas or, or providers who are not normally ICU providers. Um, you know, I, I have a window only into like uh, sort of my own limited world because I am in critical care. And what I saw from my perspective was that, um, I mean, first of all, that all of the ICUs essentially had been converted to ICUs that were designed to take care of, um, that were taking care of COVID patients, regardless of whether they had initially been surgical ICUs, cardiovascular ICUs, neurologic ICUs, you know, every ICU was a COVID ICU. And um, many of the standard hospital floors, which are designed to take care of like just, you know, like non-critically ill patients. So, you know, there are sometimes private rooms or rooms that are designed to, to help with patient privacy. Um, they're, you know, set, set back and quiet and the doors like may not have windows on them and all that. Um, and those 
those wards were also, um, many of them were converted into ICUs. So it was a real like um, <laughs> mixed crew in um, a unit that was like not intended to have patients on ventilators with many drips and, you know, the constant need to be um, uh, attending to like their every vital sign and, um, and constantly changing um, uh, status of their illness. And, you know, you mentioned that, that volume of very sick patients. How does that impact the care that you can give as a provider? I think um, the most obvious things are that ICU level care is specialty care. I mean, I, you know, the intensivists go through specialized fellowships to be able to do that. Nurses get special training to be able to deliver um, critical care. Uh, We work usually in areas that have, um, you know, with rooms that are specifically designed to take care of Um, critically ill patients. So it's stuff that includes like having ventilators in the rooms, ventilators that are designed to be able to be like highly adjustable and modifiable to be able to take care of patients, to be able to have like lots of different medication drips um, available for titration. They have big glass sliding doors to allow the beds to be easily moved in and out for transport to get to, you know, essential tests and also to be able to see the patient um, through the door and through the windows so that you can constantly be monitoring them. And all of that stuff is, um, is unavailable when you're working under these sort of suboptimal conditions. And I think the most notable of those is, um, is just that we had used up all of the, the usual ventilators and we'd moved on to ventilators that are meant to just transport people for like short periods of time and are really not designed for longer term care. You're listening to Sarah Feldberg's conversation with Dr. Maya Kotis, a clinical instructor at UCSF who's just returned from a month working at a hospital in New York City, the U.S. epicenter of the COVID-19 pandemic. We'll have more after a short break. I want to ask you about the disease itself, and you obviously have a lot of experience as a respiratory and critical care specialist in treating respiratory illnesses. What, how is COVID-19 different than what you've seen with other respiratory illnesses? I think what I've noticed um, are maybe, maybe two major things. One is that the illness is really prolonged. Um, I've certainly had patients who had um, acute respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS, who've had very, very prolonged illness and very severe illness. Um, But it seems like those patients um, previously had been, like there was a wider range of duration of illness. and, And most of the patients that I've cared for here in New York have been really, really sick, um, needing a lot of respiratory support for substantially longer, like two to three weeks, um, as opposed to, you know, maybe a a week or or a few days even. Um, And the other thing that I've noticed is that when people come off of the ventilator, they are profoundly, profoundly weak. Um, I have been struck by how profound that is. But I've also been attentive to the fact that, um, you know, a lot of what we need to 
remember and taking care of this illness is, is really like to go back to the principles that we do know and do understand and everything that we have learned already about taking care of um, ARDS and to cling to the things that we do know because there is so much that is unknown. And while there are some differences here that are clear, we don't understand those differences and what we can better understand are the things that we have already defined about other similar illnesses. When we first saw the coronavirus emerging in the U.S., um, there was this sort of general idea that it was mostly affecting older people with severe complications and people who had underlying conditions. Is that something that you've seen? Who, who have your patients been? I actually have not seen that. Um, and that was a surprise for me also. Even when I was in San Francisco, um, the patients that I saw, you know, particularly at San Francisco General Hospital were mostly like fairly young, working age, um, you know, mostly fairly healthy, like robust patients. Um, and in, um, in San Francisco, I think that a lot of those patients were, you know, like working class males who had not had the luxury of being able to socially isolate. And that was, you know, sort of the reason that I put for them being the patients that we saw. In New York, it's just been so much more widespread that I've seen kind of like every type of patient. And this is obviously coming from the bias of working in a, being stationed in a Manhattan hospital where, um, you know, there, there are a lot, um, like the, the socioeconomic status is higher um, the patients uh, that I care for are probably more Caucasian than in like the boroughs. So I have like a very biased view, but it really has seemed to affect like all ages, all prior, you know, prior diseases, lack of prior disease. Um, it, it, just, it just seems to like be um, affecting everyone. And because you're taking care of these patients that are really critically ill, do you get to talk to them? Are you, do you get to interact with them or are they already sort of too sick to communicate with you by the time you see them? Um, unfortunately, it's mostly the latter that they've been too sick to communicate with me by the time that I see them. A lot of the patients, um, you know, in part because of the system kind of being overrun and overburdened, a lot of the patients didn't go on the ventilator until they were really so sick that they truly could not withstand breathing on their own anymore. And, um, and so there was no time for most of these people, people to have a conversation with me before they got intubated and went on the ventilator. I do talk to my patients. I've talked to them you know, when they're deeply sedated, um, I've talked to them when they're coming out of their, um, of their sedation. I've talked to them when they're ready to come off the ventilator. Um, I've talked to them when they've just made it off the ventilator and, um, and I like cling to those moments, but unfortunately I haven't been able to really hear a lot of people's like life stories. What do you talk about when, when you're talking to a patient who is sedated? What are you saying? Um, I'm usually just telling them that, that I'm there with them, that we're in the hospital, that they're in the intensive care unit at Cornell and that they've been really sick, but that they're going to get better and that their family's thinking of them and that even though we're strangers, we're here with them. And has COVID-19, because, because hospitals have had to change visitation policies and really bar visitors largely, has that 
changed the way have you interact with patients' family members? Have you been in touch with patients' family members? I think it's probably been one of the worst aspects of um, this pandemic because it affects not only patients who have COVID, but patients who don't. And I think it's particularly profound when patients are so critically ill because some of our patients die without their family members having even seen them for weeks, like from the time that they got admitted. And they may sometimes pass with nobody being able to be with them. I do, um, you know, our team and I think all of the healthcare providers who are working under these um, like strange and sort of horrifying uh, conditions have made every effort to call families um, as much as they can, but unfortunately, that's usually limited to once a day to provide an an, um, an update. And I just can't even imagine what it would be like to be receiving like a once a day, you know, twenty minute update on your family member who's been critically ill for weeks, and you're not sure if they're going to survive. I can't I can't really imagine a worse um, a worse situation to be in if you are out in the community thinking of your loved one. And when you look back on the last month in New York and think about the highs and the lows, have, have you had any time to reflect on that? What are, what are you taking away from this experience? Um, I've had a lot of time to reflect on it and I don't really have like a, a synthesized view. I um, was really touched and really heartbroken by a lot of the um, patients that I cared for and, um, you know, struck by how much I was affected by these losses. Um, I, you know, normally in San Francisco, I take care of patients for a week at a time in the ICU. And it allows us this sort of, like, safety, this distance of being able to um, to escape from that level of intensity. And, you know, while we're very attached to like the course of the patient during our time with them, then we step away and we take a breath and we, um, we get some space to just like take care of ourselves and think about ourselves and go back to normal life. And in this case, like I've thought about some of these patients for two to three weeks and I've, seen them, you know, multiple times a day, adjusted their ventilators, thought about their drips, talked with their nurses, talked with their families. And when we lose them, it has been just heartbreaking. And it is sort of a beautiful reminder of how these patients' courses start before me and they continue after me, whether or not I'm seeing them for a week or two weeks or three weeks. It doesn't really matter, um, but it was a reminder of how long this really goes on for these patients, um, and and um, sort of the how I only see them for this little snapshot most of the time, but how much of an effect this has on such a huge portion of their lives. And. Now that your your time at uh, the hospital there has finished up and you're heading back to the Bay Area, are you glad that you went? I'm very glad that I came. Um, I I have a really complicated set of emotions now because I 
am grieving for the patients that we've lost. And I'm kind of relieved to have this be done because it was stressful and tiring and sad. Um, and I feel really guilty also for, um, for leaving this job feeling like half done. Um, I feel guilty for abandoning my colleagues who didn't sign up to do this. They didn't sign up to, you know, a lot of these providers didn't want to be taking care of ARDS patients. This, they wanted to take care of neurologic disease. That's what they signed up for. And here I am, like I came, I swooped in for this little bit in this little like cloud of glory and then I get to leave and they have to continue and they have to continue taking care of patients that maybe aren't in their area of specialization and they don't get a break and they don't get time to go home and reflect and recover the way I do. And I have a lot of guilt for that too, but I am very, very, very glad that I got to work with them. I'm very glad that I got to do my like tiny, tiny little part to take care of a few patients during this. Um, and I'm, glad that I, you know, just got an opportunity to be in, inspired by um, these patients and, and these other providers. Well, thank you so much for talking to me about this, Maya, and thank you for your work both in New York and here in San Francisco. Yeah, it's a pleasure talking with you, and I'm, I'm grateful for the, for the opportunity to do this work. So thank you for letting me share it. Thanks to Sarah Feldberg for that interview. You can read her story about Dr. Maya Kodas at sfchronicle.com. Thanks to Dr. Kodas for joining us and for her work. Thanks to King Kaufman for producing this episode, and thank you for listening. Fifth Emission is a production of the San Francisco Chronicle. If you like this podcast, please consider becoming a financial supporter of the largest newsroom in Northern California. You can sign up for a San Francisco Chronicle membership at sfchronicle.com slash pod.